Good morning. It is my privilege to share God's Word with you this morning, and I'm looking forward to it. I will, I will say, um, during, especially during the worship practice this morning, I found myself a little bit choked up as we sang and practiced uh, Jesus Loves Me. I could see Mary Ann <laughs> standing there. That happened to be one of Mary Ann's favorite worship songs, and I could, I could just see her standing there and with her eyes closed and moving back and forth as she would do as she would sing praise. And uh, it makes me long for the time when we're all going to be together once again and uh, worshiping the Lord together with nobody missing. Won't that be great? Won't that be great? We are in an interesting passage of Scripture this morning, and I'm going to ask you to stand as I read it. It is not very long. We're in uh, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, verses 43 through 48. And this is Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Will you pray with me? Father in Heaven, we come to your word this morning with open minds and open hearts, and we ask that you would teach us. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us and give us the means to live obediently to the truth that you proclaim through your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. According to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and his Holy Spirit-inspired apostles, love is to be the foundational characteristic of all who follow Jesus Christ. Jesus said that the two greatest commandments are, and you know these, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And when he was alone with his disciples, he said to them, You are to love one another as I have loved you. And in fact, he said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Paul tells us in Galatians 6.14 that the entire law is fulfilled in one commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes on to tell Timothy that the goal of his instruction is love. If you look again in Galatians 5 at the fruit of the Spirit, what's the first fruit of the Spirit listed? Love. 
John tells us that whoever does not love abides in death. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul wrote the most comprehensive description of love ever penned by a human being. And if we read that with truly open hearts and minds, we cannot help but admit to ourselves that that this kind of love as Paul describes it, seems to be almost a human impossibility, does it not? And yet, in reality, there is a kind of love that we are quite skilled in. We tend very well to love what we should not love, do we not? Love is rooted in desire, and for us, naturally, that desire grows and blossoms where it should not. We love ourselves more than we love other people. We love power, position, and praise more than we love humility, compassion, and service. We love pleasure more than we love God. And in fact, because of our sinful nature, we, lo- we actually love the very things that destroy us. So this foundational characteristic of followers of Christ is really a reordering of our love. We are commanded to love God, to love our neighbor, to love one another, because these are the things that lead to life and not to destruction. But this life-giving love is a challenge. It's a challenge for us, even as followers of Jesus Christ who've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit within us, Our journey of love for God, love for our neighbors, and love for one another tends to be one of two steps forward and one step back, and sometimes even two steps back that puts us right back where we began. This kind of love we understand and admit to one another, it's difficult to live out. And then we come to this passage in Matthew chapter 5, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Not only are we to love God with all our hearts and minds, not only are we to love our neighbor as ourself, to love one another as Christ loves us, but here Jesus says we are to love our enemies. Love your enemies, Jesus says. Now last November, I addressed the matter of loving Jesus within the context of Jesus' three times repeated question to Peter, Simon, do you love me? That is in reference to the first and greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Then in March, we considered the matter of loving one another above all other earthly relationships when we looked at Paul's love for the Thessalonian church. And that corresponds to our love of our neighbor and our love for one another. Today, I, Tim Simon, you know who I am. I, who am love-challenged as much or more than any of you are, I want to urge myself and you to embrace and live out this command of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, to love our enemies. But before we begin, I want to say that I think that this is, if not the hardest, it is one of the 
most difficult commands that our Lord gives us to love our enemies. And he is our Lord. He is our master. He is our king. And so this is not a recommendation by Jesus. This is not a suggestion by Jesus. This is a command that we are to love one another, uh, to, to love our enemies. <clears throat> and um, with that in mind, oh, I, I also want to say that we will not be doing, doing an exhaustive study. And we only have a few moments to look at this together. And so I want you to just take what Jesus says here and ponder it. I want you to seek the Holy Spirit's wisdom to understand and his power to live out what we are going to be looking at here today as Jesus' command to love our enemies. And with that in mind, I've organized our study this morning around four questions. Why, and we could add in the world, why in the world would Jesus command us to love our enemies? That's the first question we're going to look at. The second question is, how are we instructed to love our enemies? The third question that we're going to look at is, who are our enemies? And then we're going to go back to another how question. How is it possible? How can we love our enemies? So the first question we begin with is, why does Jesus command us to love our enemies? Why are we commanded to love our enemies? Jesus' instruction here is the last in a series of teaching that begins with the phrase, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Now, just a side note. Well, each time Jesus says this, he's looking back to the commands of God that he gave through Moses to the people of Israel. And so just a side note here, just the fact that Jesus phrases it this way, you have heard it said, but I say to you, this is great evidence of his deity. Have you noticed that? I mean, he's speaking with the authority of God when he says this. You have heard it said, and what he's referring back to is the Mosaic law given to Moses by God. And he says, but I say to you. In other words, I'm going to correct you in your misunderstanding of this. And this is the last of six such sayings. And what is interesting about this one is that only the love your neighbor part is found in the Mosaic law. It never, you never in the Old Testament do you find where God says you are to hate your enemies. It seems that this is an inference that the uh, Jewish religious teachers made. Adam Clark, um, uh, 18th century commentator, records that a later Jewish philosopher wrote this. A Jew sees a Gentile fall into the sea. Let him by no means lift him out. For it is written, Thou shalt not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor, but this is not thy neighbor. So this is the attitude, the prevailing attitude of the people to whom Jesus was speaking here. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Jesus says this is wrong. 
that God's kingdom citizens are to love their enemies. In reality, even though this command is not found in the Old Testament, the seeds of it are actually there. And we're going to see that when we look at the second question. But let's just stick with the first question right now. The question, why? Why does Jesus tell us, why does he command us to love our enemies? And we find it in verse 45. He says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And he adds an exclamation point to that in verse 48, the last verse we read. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, we are to love our enemies in, an, in order that we may be like God in the sense that we might reflect the character of our Father in heaven. And our Father in heaven demonstrates his love for his enemies in two ways. The first way we see right here explicitly in this text. And it's, and it's this. Jesus says, For he, God, the Father, makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This is an expression of God's common grace. He demonstrates his love for all in this world by sustaining his creation through providing for the daily needs of what's of life on this planet. Now, according to Jesus, it is not simply a matter of the natural order of the universe that the sun rises every morning in the east and sets in the west. It is not simply a matter of the natural order of the universe that rains come and water the ground so that plants grow and so that we have water for our own sustenance. Jesus says that it is because God, this is an evidence of God's love for everyone, including his enemies. And that both the good and the evil benefit from God's love on a daily basis. That's the first reason we are told to love our enemies, because we are to be like God, and, and God loves his enemies by doing good for his enemies. But the second more important way that God demonstrates his love for his enemies, and I'm sure you know where I'm going with this, isn't recorded in this particular passage, passage but it's evident by the very fact that Jesus is standing among these people speaking with them. That second way that God demonstrates his love was by sending his son Jesus Christ to die in their place, bearing their penalty, bearing the penalty of their rebellion in order to rescue them from the domain of darkness and reconcile them to God. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10 says this explicitly. This is what Paul writes. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And then he gives this little example. He says, For one scarcely will die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love to us in that while we were still sinners, we were unrighteous. 
Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been made justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For, and here's where I'm going, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. God demonstrates his love to his enemies by providing for their needs and then by providing for their most urgent need, reconciliation to him through the blood of his own own son, Jesus Christ. So the first reason we are to love our enemies is that we are to be like God, our father, who loves his enemies. The second reason that Jesus gives for why we are to love our enemies is that if we don't love our enemies, we're being just like they are. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And obviously, these two categories that Jesus chooses were significant for the Jewish listeners. They hated the tax collectors, and they hated the Gentiles. And Jesus is telling them, looking them in the face and saying, if you don't love them, then you are just like them. Our enemies love those who are like they are, and they hate those who are different from them or who stand in opposition to them. So if we love our neighbors, but we hate our enemies, we're doing exactly what our enemies are doing. And Jesus' emphasis is that kingdom citizens are different than citizens of this world. If you belong to Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith in him, you are a citizen of heaven. First and foremost, a follower of Jesus Christ and a citizen of heaven. Secondarily, you are a citizen of this world and a citizen of whatever country you might live in. But as as kingdom citizens, our allegiance is not to this world to act the way it acts, but to the kingdom of heaven to act the way our king and our father act. So these are the two reasons that Jesus gives us for loving our enemies. These are why we should love our enemies. We are to be like God, our Father, who loves his enemies, and we are not to to be like our enemies. We are to be different. But there's also a third reason not found in Jesus' words here that I wanted to also um, bring up, and that is uh, first stated in the Old Testament and then reiterated in the New Testament. Both Paul and the writer of Hebrews quote Moses when they wrote, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We are not God, and in this matter we are not to be like him. Judgment is the rightful prerogative of God. He is just, he is trustworthy, and we can depend on God to make all the right decisions concerning those who may be our enemies. We must leave his judgment in his hands, and we are to love them instead. We are not to take judgment into our own hands. And this brings us to the second question. All right, if we are told to love our enemies, how are we to 
live this out? How are we to work this out? And we begin with what Jesus said in verse 44. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The first way we show love for our enemies is to pray for them. Now note, Jesus says, pray for them. This doesn't mean that you pray God's judgment down upon your enemies. That would be praying against them, not praying for them, wouldn't it? We all understand that to pray for someone is to ask God to do good for them. We are to pray that God would, and the most good that they need is, we are to pray that God would make himself known to them, that they would see God for who he is, and that they would submit themselves to his authority and turn to him in faith so that they do not have to suffer the judgment of God that they deserve, so that they would be no longer his enemies or our enemies, but they would be reconciled. To God, And so that is the first thing that we are to do for our enemies, to demonstrate our love for them, pray for them. As I mentioned earlier, there is clear instruction even in the Old Testament about this. Exodus 23, 45. Oh, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead here. The second way we are instructed to love our enemies is found in Luke's version of this same sermon that Jesus Gave, And he tells us in Luke 6.33, not only are we to pray for our enemies, but we are to do good for our enemies. And uh, I think we all understand, again, what it means to do good. But there are some examples in Scripture for us to follow. And one, as I mentioned earlier, is from the Old Testament. Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5. If you meet your enemy's ox... Or his donkey. Now remember, this is under the law, even not under grace. This is under law. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Do you get the picture? He's your enemy. He hates you. His donkey's down under a burden. Go over and help him. That's a pretty graphic illustration. Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Paul quotes this Proverbs in Romans 12 amid other instructions that he gives us as followers of Christ. Important instructions, repay no one with evil for evil. In other words, I'm going to get even should never come out of our lips. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And as we mentioned before, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And then he, Paul concludes that section with, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Peter commands us in the same way when he says in 1 Peter 3, 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. So it's not only what we do, it's what we say. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now from a worldly point of view, 
as we look at the particulars, the actual working out of loving our enemies and to do good for them, it sounds absolutely ridiculous, doesn't it not? From a human standpoint, it sounds absolutely ridiculous. Well, do you know what? We have a ridiculous faith. Did you know that? We, we have a ridiculous faith. It is grounded in the unbelievable message that when we were God's enemies, as we've already talked about, he loved us and sent his son to die in our place that we might be reconciled to God. That we can do nothing to make amends for our rebellion. We can only receive forgiveness for our sins against God as a free gift by putting our faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 about that? It's foolishness to those who do not believe. It's ridiculous to those who do not believe. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block, Paul says. But when we embrace the foolishness of the gospel, then we can welcome the foolishness of the teaching of our Lord and Savior within the gospel. Obviously, to love your enemy, to pray for your enemy, to do good for your enemy, is it, it, it sounds insane. And yet, as followers of Christ, it is the wisdom of God that teaches us to do this. So if we are going to, to live this out, we need to understand first, then, who are our enemies? That's our third question. Who are our enemies? Contextually, I think we need to understand what Jesus is saying here relative to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' sermon defines the characteristics of those who have put their faith in Christ and by God's grace have become citizens of the kingdom of God, as we've talked about already. We who are a part of God's kingdom have been given a mission to live kingdom lives and expand the kingdom in this world through disciple-making and disciple-training. We were once God's enemies, and we have received his love. We are now to extend that love to those who remain his enemies, and by association become our enemies as well, in the hope that they will receive his love and be reconciled to him. So again, part of, part of the answer to this question, who are our enemies, is found right in this text. In verse 44, Jesus describes our enemies as those who persecute you. Those who persecute you. Now, the Greek word translated persecute means to put to flight, to drive away, to harass, to trouble, to molest. It carries this idea, obviously, of hostility toward another person. And earlier in this sermon, in verse 11, Jesus describes uh, these enemies as those who insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. In 1 Peter 4, Peter describes 
them as those among whom we live who do not understand why we don't do what they do and say what they say, and so they malign us. That's how Peter puts it. They malign us. So our enemies are those who oppose us, those who are hostile toward us because they are in fierce disagreement with what we believe and how we want to live our lives. This can be as serious as physical harm and death, as we know some of our brothers and sisters around the world are facing. And it can be more subtle, such as being ignored, being overlooked uh, for a job promotion, uh, being gossiped about, uh, any other way where people can uh, exercise hostility toward us whether it's through, through verbal hostility or actual physical hostility. So I don't know. Can you think of someone in your life who might fit into this category? Perhaps a neighbor, co-worker, some other acquaintance. Maybe it's even someone in your own family. You've become a believer and they're not happy that you are a believer. I don't know. But I think... What's been on my mind more than anything recently is um, the increasingly divisive aspect of political disagreement in our day. Uh, there seems to be no ability at all for people to come and have reasonable dialogue when it comes to political differences. And each side of the political spectrum paints the other side as the enemy. And the vitriol that, that we see in opposing political ideologies has really reached a crescendo that I have never seen in my lifetime. And I'm pretty old. I'm 69 years old. I'm going to be 70 in a few months. And I have never seen it like this. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. We may come to a place in our country where it is dangerous for us to proclaim our faith in Jesus Christ, and especially to live out that faith according to the unchanging Word of God in this world that is nothing but about change. When that time comes, when mistreatment comes for the name of Christ, our response must be in keeping with our faith and with the commands of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And this political playing field, I think, is a training ground for us. There have been churches that have split over political differences. There have been believers who have become each other's enemies over political differences. And according to what Jesus says, this is wrong. It is sin. And it must not be. We are to love our enemies, no matter where the realm of animosity comes from. We are to love our enemies. 
So this brings us to our last question. How can we love our enemies? How is it possible? It's not. (laughs) It's impossible. We cannot love our enemies in our own strength. It's impossible. Isn't that good news? (laughs) No. (laughs) In fact, it really is good news because it forces us to depend on the one who can help us love our enemies. One of the greatest gifts we receive when we put our faith in Jesus Christ is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in us. He is the spirit of wisdom. He is the spirit of strength. He is the spirit of life. And according to Paul, God's love... God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If we are going to be able to love our enemies, we need to consciously pursue the Holy Spirit's power and wisdom in our life. And that begins through prayer. But that's number one. If we we are going to be able to love our enemies, we can only do this through the power and wisdom of the Holy Spirit within us. Pray that the love of God that has been poured into our hearts, into your own heart, would overflow to all with whom you come in contact, whether friend or enemy. We must continue to gather together as the church of Jesus Christ, so we can, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, stir up one another to love and good works. We can't do this alone. We can't do it under our own power. We need the Holy Spirit's power within us. We cannot do it alone. We need one another to help us. And we must fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes on Jesus. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility. That's what we're talking about. People who are hostile to you. People who are hostile toward me. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We're simply walking the path that our Lord and Savior walked. And in walking that path, we will suffer the hostility of those who oppose us. But Jesus says we are not to render evil for evil or reviling for reviling. We are to love our enemies. And he endured that hostility of his enemies because he was able to look to eternity and see the joy of the kingdom of heaven that not only awaited him, but all those whom he redeemed through his death on the cross. We must keep that same perspective. 
Keep that same perspective. Although mistreatment and persecution in this life seems like a heavy weight to bear, these things are temporary and brief. They are, we have all eternity to look to in the presence of our Lord and King Jesus. So, I'm talking to me, and I'm talking to you, when I say, now, in this life. This is our only opportunity to do this. Do you know that? This is our only opportunity to do this. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. Pray that they might be set free from the sin that is ultimately going to destroy them if they don't. And pray that they would find life in Jesus Christ as you have. Let's pray. Lord, we begin first by reminding ourselves that we were once your enemies and that if it had not been for your love for us, we would be hopeless. We would be lost. We would still be standing under the judgment, the righteous judgment of God against our sins. But because you loved us, we now have life. We now have hope. We have reconciliation with your Father. Lord, help us to respond to our enemies in the same way that you responded to us. Lord, help us to pray for them. Help us to do good for them. Help us to to proclaim to them the gift that you offer to them, if they would but receive it by faith. And Lord, we pray that you would make our witness in this way fruitful, that we would see enemies saved and reconciled not only to you, but to us as well. We trust that you will do your will, and we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.